And this just really was the beginning of what became probably the most repressive period since the dictatorships. I mean, this month of November was the second deadliest month since Bolivia became a democracy about 40 years ago in terms of state forces killing people. And then it just went on this rampage. Uh, They started arresting people who spoke out against the government. They were charged with terrorism or sedition. They would shut down indigenous radio stations. Um, If you were a journalist from one of the commercial stations and were outspoken about the government, you were charged with sedition or terrorism. Um, I spent most of the year, (laughs) much of this time in jail uh, with folks interviewing them. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org, and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Well, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Jim Cavallaro, and I am the executive director of the University Network for Human Rights. I'm really happy and excited to be here for this book launch. This is the book. I know you've got other visuals of this book, uh, and we're releasing it. We have with us both Linda Farthing and Thomas Becker. And let me start by presenting the two of them, and then we'll get right into a discussion with the two authors about this book, about why they wrote it, about what's in it, and why it's important for, for this hemisphere. But let me start with Linda Farthing, who's got a really impressive background, as is Thomas Becker. Uh, Linda Farthing is a journalist and independent scholar who reported and commented from Bolivia in real time during the 2019-2020 coup for The Guardian, The Economist, Al Jazeera, America's Quarterly, NPR, and the BBC. So she was there in real time. She has worked in community development projects. She has taught and written about Bolivia since the 1980s. She has worked on three documentaries on topics in Latin America and has edited nine books. She is also the co-author of three previous books on Bolivia, in addition to this book, which is excellent, as you will see. And those those books were Evo's Bolivia, Continuity and Change, From the Minds to the Streets, A Bolivian's Activist's Life, and Impasse in Bolivia, Neoliberal Hegemony and Popular Resistance. So we're thrilled to have Linda with us. Let me just flag that she's had some internet issues I think she'll be on, at least initially, just on voice without an image, so we make sure that we can hear her comments, answers, uh, and analysis of this text. Now let me introduce, if I can, Thomas Becker. He's a senior clinical advisor and attorney at the University Network for Human Rights, spent most of the past 15 years working with social movements in Bolivia. He was the driving force between the first successful U.S. case against an ex-head of state, Mamani versus Sanchez de Rosada, which held Bolivia's former president responsible for the massacre of indigenous protesters. 2019 to 2020, he documented abuses in Bolivia by the Añez regime for the University Network for Human Rights and Harvard Law School, where he has taught, where he has taught for a number of years. He has also worked on human rights issues with Adavasis in India, with Sarawis in Western Sahara, in Lebanon, Palestine, Honduras, Colombia, and in Chiapas. When he's not practicing law and advocating for human rights, 
he's an award-winning musician and songwriter who has recorded with Grammy-winning producers and toured throughout the world as a drummer and guitarist. And he's also a mountain climber who has summited peaks, including Mount Everest. So two very impressive, talented folks that you're going to hear from. And what we're going to hear about is this book. And, and let me start. I'm going to flip a few questions. I'm going to start with the question, the title, coup. Because you don't, miss, you don't mince words with the title. A lot of folks dance around this issue and talk about a change in governance or regime change. Some accepted a narrative, and I'd like to ask you about this narrative, that, oh, no, th this wasn't a coup. This was a response to uh, elect alleged electoral fraud, and it was a popular transition. Why do you call it a coup? Tell us what the case is for a coup and tell us what's wrong in the narrative that many still advance that there was electoral fraud and that the transition was legitimate. Tell me why that's not the case. I, again, I have my own views, but I want to hear it from from uh, the horse's mouth. So, Linda, Linda, if you're with if you're with us, maybe we'll start with you and then pick up with Thomas. Can you hear me, Linda? Um, I guess you want me to answer that question. <laughs> yes, please. I'm not just me. I'll bet there are some others who want an answer to that question. Uh, well, the way that Tom, or certainly, uh, and, you know, we obviously don't agree about everything because that's the, the nature of uh, any relationship in life, um, is that those two events were very separate events. The event that was the protest against Abel Morales running for a fourth term, which he was not permitted to do under the terms of the 2009 Constitution. And um, there were very legitimate concerns. Uh, a lot, there were a number of, certainly large numbers of students in the streets, a lot of whom were very much manipulated because the right wing really had no, or the or even the center had no real policy proposals for what they wanted to do with the country. They simply uh, beat the drum of fraud repeatedly, and uh, which encouraged people to go in the streets. So there was a certain degree of manipulation, but there was also a legitimate concern. Bolivia has gone through a large number of dictatorships in its time, a large number of people who have stayed in power, uh, not respect the Constitution. And uh, Evo Morales effectively was doing, in my opinion, doing exactly that. However, the process that happened that dislodged him became, also was clearly, was very much unconstitutional. And uh, that is why I would call what happened a coup. Um, he, he, the people who, the, the people who are supposed to succeed him according to the constitutional uh, succession were, were, um, threatened with violence. Their families were threatened until they resigned. And then a group of people who were not elected, uh, were not elected officials in any way, shape or form, basically appointed Janine Añez, who was the second vice president, um, of the Senate to become the president. And, and at that point, it was the far right, the, because Janine Añez really represents far right interests and, and is from a very conservative party. 
maybe I'll, she just ended on hijack. So maybe I'll just hijack what Linda was saying since it sounds like she's disappearing. Um, so, you know, I think in Bolivia, there's this false, there's this dichotomy where it's like, was there fraud or was there a coup? And I think first it's important really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if there was fraud or not. It doesn't matter if Abel was the best president or the worst president. You cannot overthrow presidents illegally like what happened in Bolivia. So in terms of the fraud narrative, this is something, this, these seeds were planted months and months before the elections. So just like in the United States, Trump had planted these seeds and kind of right-wing zealots ran with this. So the, the moment the first ballot was cast, people yelled fraud. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the OAS certainly perpetuated this by saying, oh, there's some irregularities, we're really concerned. But there's been analysis since then, both through the Washington Post, sorry, through the Washington Post, the New York Times, MIT, various institutions have analyzed whether or not there was fraud. And according to them, there was not. I am a human rights lawyer, so I, you know, I'm not a statistician. I can't speak to that. But there are certainly a lot of articles on the Washington Post, on the New York, in the New York Times, MIT. These folks can address that. And they have. And they said there was not fraud. I think the more important thing is, and the reason I say that it doesn't matter if there's fraud, you know, if we talk about torture in Guantanamo, it's irrelevant if the person was, you know, going to blow up a building and is a terrorist or is not. It doesn't matter. Torture is torture. And a coup is a coup, whether or not Abel should have stayed in power or not. And I think this is a really problematic, I think it, it, it just derails the more important conversation. And just for a moment, most of this, I won't dive into the weeds, but I'm going to dive into the weeds just for a second on this coup issue, because I think there's still this really problematic debate on whether or not there was a coup. So in Bolivia, f- first of all, in Bolivia, only four people can become president, the president, uh, vice president, president of Senate, and president of Congress. That's the line of secession. Every single one of these four people resigned under threats to violence. They they kidnapped high-level MAS officials. They burned Abel Morales' sister's house. They ransacked his house. Um, Victor Borda, who was the head of president, uh, the vi- head of the, the, sorry, the president of uh, Congress, they kidnapped his brother, tortured him, sexually assaulted his niece, and said, if you don't resign, we're going to kill your brother. So he explicitly you know, said, I'm resigning to save the life of my brother. There's nothing democratic about a transition like that. It, it's, it's clear. And then after that, you have right-wing zealots from the right, um, from the Santa Cruz uh, region, uh, this, this person, Camacho, who's, um, you know, <laughs> to, to say he's right wing is an understatement. You know, when he was a youth, he was part of this youth league that you can see videos on the Internet of them doing this, the Nazi salute. I mean, they are quite little fascists. He went on television, explicitly said that he paid the police to mutiny to force Avo's resignation. He said that his father, who was part of the dictatorships, you know, de- a couple decades ago, his father negotiated with the military to force Abel's resignation. And he explicitly has admitted that the person who was in charge of this negotiation on behalf of, the, behalf of the military received an award, which was he was named Minister of Defense by the new coup government. Again, this nothing about this is, is democratic. And I think the third thing that's super important is that you have, following that resignation of Abel, when all these leaders fled to save their own lives, you have this meeting that the Catholic Church organized with all these opposition members, there was members of the Catholic Church, the Brazilian ambassador, obviously Brazil's government is a far right-wing government, uh, a right-wing representative of the EU, and then several opposition members um, sat down and decided, we're going to name Jayanine Añez as the next president. None of these folks are elected officials. Bolivia, which is the most indigenous country in all the Americas, none of these folks are indigenous. There was nothing democratic about it. They just sat around. It's, like, it's a, the equivalent of Jim, you, me, and Linda sitting around and saying, who do we want to name the next president? 
picking up our phone and quite literally calling during this meeting and offering it to who we decide. Nothing democratic about that. So this is a coup. Um, I think that the really problematic part is that, as you mentioned, Jim, that the, the rest of the world, and even in Bolivia, there's still this debate, was this a coup? And I think a lot of it has to do with misinformation or disinformation spread by the right wing once they took power. Um, you know, to bring it, to tie it to the United States, Añez's government hired an organization in the United States called CLS Strategies. Um, this group was run by, is, is run by a guy named Mark Firestein, who right now is an advisor for Biden, who worked for the Bureau of Western Hemispheric Affairs for Obama. And this organization um, basically was hired to rebrand the image of Añez, uh, the Añez government, in terms of human rights, democra democracy, and elections. And what they did is they created a bunch of fake uh, Facebook accounts, Twitter accounts. They were the first U.S. organization um, actually punished by Facebook for spreading fake information, for creating fake accounts. And so this has really been part of their strategy is to spread all this disinformation and really lobby folks, lobby institutions, well, Democrats, Republicans, lobbied governments, but also lobby institutions um, that work in human rights daily, you know, bombarding Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, these larger human rights institutions, and saying, look, there was no coup. Though Human Rights Watch, I will give them this, did say that this was a coup. Uh, they've been really quite successful at really painting a different narrative that's been really, you know, problematic here, and it allowed this coup government to stay in power for, you know, roughly a year. So th there's a lot there and a lot of follow-up questions. <clears throat> if, if you'll allow me to synthesize what you said and what Linda said, is I think you've separated into, into two moments. The debate about whether there was electoral fraud, which will, with that, together with that, you have the, the issues of should Evo have been a candidate or not? Was he trying to maintain himself in power beyond the legitimate constitutional limits. Entirely independent of those questions, there's what happened in the days and weeks that eventually led to the Anya's presidency. And both of you are quite clear that this is a coup because of the violence, the threats, the succession, uh, the use of terror, and, uh, and the fact that it was cooked up by a group of people, a Catholic church, the Brazilian embassy, that have nothing to do with succession in uh, in, in Bolivia. But let me go back to the first set of issues because I do think it's important. And I think it's important. We'll get to this at the end, I hope, in terms of what this book, this what happened in Bolivia, what it means for Bolivia and for the rest of the hemisphere and for the rest of the world. Because I think we do have to be on guard for the idea, which is one of the main ideas that come out of Bolivia and other places, that if there was fraud, or if one can allege fraud with some minimally, minimally convincing basis, then violent actions and and other uh, means of of changing leadership is legitimate. So I do want to get back to, and I, I know you're not a statistician, Thomas. You have a lot of capacities. I read them, but also to Linda about the fraud. What was being said in real time? And then what ha what happened afterwards with the OAS and MIT? I don't know if you can speak briefly about that, because that does continue to linger in a way that I think may have consequences for other states. So what what was what was being said in real time about fraud and what what were the analysis afterwards in terms of, again, for people who are not Bolivia experts who won 
or who did win wasn't even at stake. What was at stake was the difference between the, the candidates, right? So maybe you can just talk about that a bit, please. Linda, hey, if, you're, if you're with us, if you can start on that, that would I be great. I think I'm back. Am I back? You're I back. Here. <laughs> um, yeah, the fraud narrative um, was one that was constructed way before the election. It was, it was um, the opposition had decided much like later in the United States, that they were going to decry fraud no matter what the results were. And that was very clear to me uh, various times when we were waiting on Sunday night for the results to come in, that even when their candidate, when Carlos Mesa was actually leading, who was the main opposition candidate, um, they were still saying it was fraud. I mean, it was so deeply entrenched, this notion of fraud. And then the OAS had held a press conference, which I attended, and on the basis of effectively no evidence, um, they they announced that they they announced irregularities, which was a discourse that they continued to use and then uh, did a study and a review in which they um, showed these supposed irregularities. This study has since been uh, certainly on some, some would say debunked, but certainly very seriously questioned by large numbers of researchers from all over the world. A few people have supported the OAS, but for the most part, um, Everybody who is a serious statistician and done serious research has come out saying that, in fact, there was no there was no fraud or if there was any evidence of fraud, it was not significant. I think a really important point that for me when I did the research on the book was that I discovered that and uh, that there really are no international standards to determine what fraud is in an election. It's based on local conditions. Well, of course, that means it's based on whoever has access to the microphone and their subjective opinion about whether or not fraud has taken you know, taken place. It really is not based on any set of sort of internationally established criteria. So it makes fraud a very easily uh, manipulative, manipulated trope that can be used by an opposition party um, in order to uh, debunk an election. And most recently, it has been used very effectively by the right wing and by the far right wing. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It Recently, we heard the same thing in, in Peru in the Castillo elections. And it, it's a very look, even in the United States, this supposed democracy, which certainly is <laughs> far from true. It's very easy to find irregularities. And what happened is the right wing capitalized on these irregularities. I mean, this is not, you know, things ranging from in very small villages, uh, the same person, uh, the person in charge of like signatures wrote signature um, kind of like um showing that these votes took place there, signed in several different communities. This is the norm in Bolivia, but it's easy to find, capitalize on one single small thing. I mean, I think the thing that was really problematic is right after the elections, um, Bolivia, to win the presidency, you have to win either with a majority or by with 40% and beat the second place person by 10%. So what had happened in Bolivia on Sunday night, um, there, the the quick count, which is kind of not the formal count, but it's the like the public account that you can so you can kind of follow what's going on, stopped. The following day, 
Uh, and at this point, Abel Morales was less than that 10% threshold, you know? And then the following day, he jumped up above 10%. And this is when the right wing said, see, look what happened. Look, he, he, there's fraud. How did it jump? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's totally understandable because in Bolivia, you know, the indigenous communities, the rural communities, those votes come in later. And if you look at the trend on the last several elections, every single time, you know, the following day, those uh, votes, uh, the votes for the MAS party have jumped up because it's gone to the the MAS candidate, which is generally a represent indigenous person, which represents generally indigenous communities. It's the same in the United States. If you look at all of a sudden, you know, when votes from California come in, it bumps up for Democrats. It's very explainable. But the OAS and the right wing jumped and said, no, this is something seems really crazy. And then once that was out there, there was no turning back. People went to the streets. They really bought this narrative that, that it had been, as Linda said, had been cooked up months and months before. I can say this personally because I I was here and I heard people saying, oh, there's going to be fraud. I mean, they were already, that 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 had been written in stone. <laughs> you know, they they had said this was going to be fraud. And so uh, that's really kind of the, the, I would say like the match that really ignited the tinderbox and really um, started, what was the beginning of the coup. So <clears throat> let me, if I can, I, I do want to return to the questions of fraud, the way the narrative preceded the elections the way, as you say, folks on the right had decided how how they would play this, so to, so to speak, regardless of what actually happened in the elections and what that might mean for other places in the Americas. And I know both of you know a good deal about not just Bolivia, but about the Western Hemisphere. So I want to get back to that. But let me, if I can, track the book a bit. One of the things that I think is great about this book, and there's a lot that I think is great about this book, and please buy this, uh, is that you, you, you present this book not just to folks very familiar with Bolivia, but people who want to be familiar with Bolivia. And, and you start with unpacking Bolivia. So uh, let's, let's do that if we could. If you can just give us a, a sort of a brief sense of what should people who are not experts on Bolivia know about Bolivia to tee up who is this Evo Morales figure? How did he get elected? What did he represent? What did he achieve? And 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 what challenges and 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 issues were there with his time in governance? But before that, in just a few minutes, which I know is a crazy question, five centuries of Bolivian history, please. Who wants, who wants to fight at that one? <laughs> Three minutes. Well, let me. Uh, I, Bolivia, I'll start. Bolivia is uh, the most indigenous country in the Americas, as Tom said. It's also the poorest country in South America. Uh, maybe now Venezuela has definitely surpassed it on that front, but historically it's been the poorest. It's a landlocked country. It lost it at its access to the sea in the late 19th century to Chile. And um, I think the most significant thing about its economy economy is like many countries of the global south it is a mono producing economy it is mine, largely historically been a mining country the one of the largest spanish mines there were two enormous spanish mines that fled, fed the, the spanish empire one was in mexico and and the other was in potosi in bolivia uh, and the country has developed de- depended on the on the extraction and the export of raw materials throughout its entire history, starting with silver and gold. And then later in the end of the 19th century, in the beginning of the 20th century, tin 
And then um, after that, uh, moving into, one might argue coca, um, but also up to natural gas. There have also been rubber booms, et cetera. Um, and so, and Bolivia is still very much a mining country. And most recently, there's it has been involved in a lot of extractive agriculture in terms of soy. So I think that is the context. It's a country that's very poor. It's never really had the ability to turn its um, economic or its its resource wealth into uh, industrialized goods. So it sells raw materials to a, to a northern country who turns around and makes a product that it sells back to countries like Bolivia, of course, at an elevated price. So the value added of Bolivia's resources basically has never stayed in Bolivia, except in the hands of a small elite who have facilitated uh, the extraction by multinationals, let's just say, or by, by internationals, whether it's the Spanish or in the 19th century, the English, and then more recently in the, in the um, 20th century, uh, the U.S., and then now with mining, particular mining interests uh, from Canada. Well, not, no, actually, to be fair, not Canada. I, I'm just somewhere right now where there's a lot of Canadian investment in mining. But um, uh, some British investment in mining, some U.S. investment in mining, and a lot of Brazilian investment in soy. So um, it's really been a resource-dependent country and, and, yet, and a very indigenous country. And as a landlocked country, it has in many ways maintained indigenous cultural traditions, partly because the indigenous people are the majority and have historically been the majority, but also because it's been quite cut off from the rest of the world. I mean, obviously the internet tends to change all that, but certainly until very recently, that was very much the case. So, sorry, can I add just a little bit onto that? Because please. I think I, I want to make sure that this part doesn't get lost, is is the racial component. Um, and, and Linda has mentioned it, that, that Bolivia is the most indigenous country in the Americas. Um, but historically, it's, it's always been people who have skin that's as light as mine running the country um, for centuries. Um, as she mentioned, the, the mines in Potosí, Eduardo Galeano said you could build a, a bridge from the, the mines in Potosí to Spain. Folks in Potosí will tell you you could build a bridge with the bones of the indigenous people that were exploited extracting the silver for, for gringos like us. <laughs> and so historically, indigenous have been completely excluded from politics. And much of that changed when Abel Morales came to power in, in, you know, just about 14 years ago, 15 years ago. So let's, let's talk about that. Explain who, who is Abel Morales and what did he represent when he came to power? And, and if you could just pick up on that thought, Thomas. Sure. I'll give the like very short version and, and we can expand on it. But Evo was, you know, the first indigenous president in the in Bolivia. There's potentially another one. There's a debate on this, but really the first one that at least identified as indigenous. And really, he was a threat to the United States. Um, he redistributed wealth, uh, you know, poverty, extreme poverty. These things, he reduced them drastically. Bolivia was the poorest country. It's now bumped up to the second poorest. But still, that's, you know, a, a big jump in South America. Uh, it had the highest Gini coefficient, the highest inequality rate, which, you know, he chipped away at. And really, the economy did. It was in, up until the coup, the fasting grow, fastest growing economy in the America, or at least in South America. And really, the people that benefited most were indigenous. Um, during his first government, I, I believe it was 15 of 17 or 13 of 15. I maybe basically the, the majority, I think all but two of his, his cabinet posts were indigenous people. And so 
he really changed the dynamic of the country. And, and, and at the end of the day, and I, you know, I think we'll probably touch on this a little bit later. There were all these critiques of the mosque and, 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 and some of them are definitely legitimate and, and they fueled a lot of the protests during this kind of the conflicts in 2019, but so much of what fueled it was racism was people that were mad that really at the end of the day, an indigenous man was in power and telling, uh, you know, controlling the country. And I think for the United States and places in the global North, Abel was very outspoken about our human rights violations in the United States or our exploitation of, 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 of working folks. And so he really was a threat, I think, to the global North and to capitalists. He definitely, you know, as much, his discourse at least was very socialist. Um, it was kind of this mixed economy, but certainly uh, was a threat to, to companies. Um, when he came into power, he nationalized. It wasn't a full nationalization, but took control of many of these industries that, that you know, they signed these contracts for ex radically exploitive contracts. And so Abel Morales said, no, these are not fair. We're going to take mm -hmm. the slightly over 50% so that the Bolivian people have control over the resources. And so this really radicalized the country and, and folks really liked him and he was really popular. And many in his elections, he won with a really big majority. Um, but this was a threat to U.S. interests. This was a threat to corporate interests. And this was a threat to the right wing in Bolivia. And I think a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of that is what fueled a lot of the unrest in 2019. And really, people capitalized on this fraud narrative. They looked for whatever. Really, at the end of the day, they threw it all against the wall and whatever stuck they were going to run with. But there were folks that were mad that an indigenous, indigenous person with at least socialist discourse uh, was a real challenge to the, the paradigm that, that had always been in power um, here in Bolivia. Let me let me pick up on that and, and ask uh, both of you, but we'll start with Linda. The the assessment you make as someone and both of you deeply involved in in Bolivia over the period of Morales, Evo Morales's governance and the mass period in power until the 2019 coup. What assessment do you make in terms of what was done well? What was done less than well? What's the assessment that, that that both of you make of the of that period? Linda, let's start with you. If you're if you're if you're online, yeah, no, I'm here. Um, yeah, 14 years is quite a long time for anyone to be in power in, in, through democratic means, for sure. And the MAS did uh, make enormous advances. And some research that I've just recently done. Uh, on um, rural indigenous women's rights um, shows that that was the group and all over the world, rural and indigenous women or rural women uh, and peasant women are the, are the poorest people on the planet and they're the ones who do the most work. And um, this was the group that advanced the most under Abel Morales. I mean, it was quite impressive when you look at uh, issues around um, education and improvements in income and declines in child mortality and maternal mortality, et cetera. That was the group that advanced the, the greatest under Evo Morales. So I think that the, the accomplishment of the Morales government was reducing poverty and reducing, particularly reducing extreme poverty in Bolivia. It certainly did not eradicate poverty, but it reduced it significantly. And that, that I think is really its crowning achievement. It also expanded indigenous rights through, through the work that it did to enable 
the 2009 Constituent Assembly to happen, and, and which is also significant, and expanded women's rights. I mean, now half of the legislature is women. I mean, this is the second or third, it sort of changes from one election to the other, uh, level of uh, women's participation in a national legislature in the world. This is significant in a country where women only got the vote in 1952. So, um I'm trying to think what else I want to I want to highlight um, in particular. I, they really did an enormous amount for rural people, which who who had really been was an it was an abandoned population, and mostly uh, most of Bolivia's rural population is definitely indigenous. Um, so that these were the groups that made the greatest strides, both both economically, in terms of political participation, and in terms of a revaluing of um, of culture and and a real. I would say a diminishing of the very deeply entrenched racism that that had shaped the society. That's not to say it didn't come roaring back in 2019, but it it really did it it really did drop. Um, some of the problems that the Morales government had were issues around uh, being an extractive economy, and which is historically has uh, countries with extractive economies, most countries have very weak governments. And Bolivia had a weak government. And in fact, the Morales administration made the government stronger. It expanded the government threefold. It provided a far greater level of services to the population, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. But um, it it's still... The style in Bolivia of management and of leadership is very much uh, um, concentrated usually in the hands of a strong male leader. And that was definitely who Evo Morales was. He was a, I mean, he is a very charismatic man. And he was able to, he, power became increasingly concentrated around him and his inner circle, whereas the commitment from the beginning was to have much more dispersed power and to have much more a much more participatory process. That process certainly started that way at the beginning, but towards the end of the time that he was in office, th that was starting to fall away more and more. Um, the other big issue that, and I, I hesitate to call this a failing of the Morales government, but um, because it, it's such a complicated issue for, for a country like Bolivia to address, which is the issue of extractivism. I mean, effectively, the, the country used the extractive process, the, the money that they managed to renegotiate and get a better deal from on gas, particularly, um, in order to fund social programs and in order to overcome poverty. This comes at a huge cost to the environment and came at a cost also to lowland indigenous peoples, particularly. The gas is in the lowland part of the country. Um, the vast majority of indigenous people live in the highlands and valleys, but there are a, a, a number of uh, indigenous groups in the lowlands. And they had never had uh, their history was very different from that of the Highland and Valley peoples in terms of organization. And the, the Morales administration never managed to completely get them on board. And as extractivism expanded, um, 
and there was more push to to grant concessions for oil and gas exploration in national parks and indigenous territories because in Bolivia, uh, like most of, I think, Latin America, the government owns uh, subsoil rights, so you can own the land to grow your crops, but you don't own the subsoil rights. So there, there, there was a there was a, a core of a conflict that that has only grown over time between. Eastern Indigenous people and um, and and the, and the government on the one hand, and Bolivia has faced increasing defore really incredibly high rates of deforestation, particularly again in the last six or seven years. So there is an expansion of the agricultural frontier with with all of the negative consequences that has for the environment. So Eva Morales is very good at giving a very good talk internationally about defending the environment. But coming out of the dependence on extractivism would, is not an easy path and would never have been an easy path. But, but I don't know that they really ever took that on or felt like they could take that on in a significant way. So there's a lot that you, that you said there, and, I, and it sets up another question that I want to get to. I, I, our time is moving quickly. It's a fascinating talk. Thank you both. But I, I was wondering, maybe Thomas, if you could take us from the underlying tensions that Linda laid out in terms of extractivism, extractivism in terms of regions of the country, ethnic tensions, governance style. How did that and maybe other factors set the stage for the crisis and the coup in 2019? What were the underlying factors in addition to the ones that Linda was talking about, which are sort of more longer term and structural, what else was percolating in, in 2019 that led to the coup? I mean, I, 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 I can mention, uh, I think, the, sorry, there's a little bit of feedback. Um, I can mention the, the the things that were capitalized on. Again, I think the real stuff that was driving it was racism, classism, uh, folks wanting to take power again. But there were things like fires in, in Chiquitania that was uh, really, uh, how do I put this? Um, fashionable. Um, there were fires that were blamed on Evo Morales, and there was a really keen right-wing team that, you know, did hashtag SOS Bolivia, hashtag uh, SOS Chiquitania, and things like that, that really, basically anything that went wrong, it was easy to point fingers to, Boliv uh, to Evo Morales. And certainly, as, as Linda mentioned, I think that there are some real issues with the extractivism. Um, I mean, it was kind of a, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't situation, because a lot of that was used to help uh, folks that had been excluded from uh, a lot of the programs in Bolivia. But things like the fire in Bolivia, this narrative of fraud and uh, various other things really helped um, mobilize people and bring them into the streets. And you have like these, these right-wing groups that really capitalized on these uh, errors, some perceived errors, some actual errors. Um, and then when the fraud thing happened, the alleged fraud, Again, it exploded, and they were able to just completely take over the streets, burn down buildings, uh, kidnap um, Bolivian officials, MAS officials. I mean, I, I represent one of the officials, Patricia Arce, who was uh, kidnapped, tortured, dragged through the streets. Uh, they put her in front of cameras and said, you know, you need to denounce the MAS party right now. Instead, she said, I will never denounce this process of change. You can kill me, but we will continue fighting for social justice or something along those lines. I mean, this spectacular woman. Um, really they capitalized on, again, real, real mistakes, real missteps, but also perceived mistakes and missteps, uh, to paint this, this narrative that this fraudulent, uh, narco dictator 
Abel Morales is destroying the country. And, uh, and it was successful. So, let me, if I can, and, and Linda, ask you and Thomas as well after. Uh, so getting back to 2019, there's, there are tensions, there are protests, there's some legitimate concerns. There's also a lot of manipulation and distortion of those concerns and leveraging of those concerns. And there's a coup and uh, Anya's is, is basically taken from beyond the list of succession and in effect, as you say, placed in the presidency. Tell us about her period in governance. What happens? What, what's the summary of that, of that, that period? Maybe I'll start, I'll start with that. Yeah, I'll let, sure. let, let Tom start with that one. In part because, you know, I spent too long uh, investigating the human rights abuses during this. So much so that just actually to put into perspective this government, uh, this government put me on a list of seditious people uh, that was going to get put in jail because I was investigating human rights abuses. Um, Anya's is this right-wing zealot, uh, evangelical Christian that was relatively unknown, honestly. Nobody really knew who she was, other than she was kind of a little bit known for sending out racist tweets about indigenous people, um, <laughs> calling their acts, uh, their ceremonies satanic and stuff like that. So she came to power and uh, illegally, uh, went out on, you know, in the palace, picked up a Bible, quite literally larger than her torso, uh, and said, you know, basically that the, the, the Christ had returned. Uh, her, her allies had literally entered the, the palace and said that uh, Pachamama, the mother earth goddess would never return. Um, you know, so she, she came in and swinging <laughs> instantly, uh, basically fired, kicked out all the, most of the Moss party, um, really honestly charged them with sedition, terrorism. In her first few days, she carried, first week alone, she carried, her government carried out two massacres. Uh, she jumped into, uh, I think on her second, third day, uh, there was a massacre in the town of Sakaba. Um, I actually, I was there in this town. Uh, she sent in troops that, that slaughtered indigenous protesters. Uh, protesters had come out in defense of the Wipala, the indigenous flag that was burnt, that her government had basically stepped on literally and figuratively. Um, and she mass her government massacred people. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I remember, cause I had, I, 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 like I said, I was there. I snuck into the hospitals and uh, interviewed folks and, and something that I'll, I still remember. And I heard this repeatedly, but one of the victims who had just come out of a coma uh, was shot in the eye. Uh, he was saving another person who had been shot and he was trying to drag him away. And a soldier shot him, it targeted him for helping other people and shot him in the eye. And he started telling me, he said, you're going to see tomorrow, they're going to say, we did this. They're going to say, we're communists, we're narco-terrorists. You know, and at the end of the day, it's because we're indigenous. And honestly, I, 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 I almost didn't believe it. I mean, I've been in Bolivia long enough to know the racism here, but it was such a clear massacre. I've, I've documented massacres quite literally, you know, on, on multiple continents. This was a very clear massacre. Um, but the following day, the news said indigenous people shot themselves. The narrative quite literally was they shot themselves to make the mosque government look bad. Um, a few days later, there was a second massacre in Sencata. Uh, to make the Anya's government just, look bad, you mean, Thomas? They oh, shot themselves to make the Anya's government look bad. I, I'm sorry. Thank you. Yes, yes. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, and, and, right. and a few days later, the Anya's government did the same thing in, in a town, uh, in this area of El Alto, just outside La Paz, called Sencata, where, again, troops came in, slaughtered indigenous people. 100% of the people killed or injured were, were indigenous. 100% of the people killed or injured were protesters. So no police, no military... Nobody, none on that side of state forces were, were killed or injured. 
but the narrative once again was, no, they shot themselves or they were going to blow up the city. All these really local <laughs> narratives. Um, and this just really was the beginning of what became arguably one of the most you know, repressive periods, probably the most repressive period since the dictatorships. I mean, this month of November was the second deadliest month since Bolivia became a democracy about 40 years ago in terms of state forces killing people. And then it just went on this rampage. Uh, they started arresting people who spoke out against the government. They were charged with terrorism or sedition. They would shut down indigenous radio stations. Um, if you were a journalist from one of the commercial stations and were outspoken about the government, you were charged with sedition or terrorism. Um, I spent most of the year, on, <laughs> much of this time in jail uh, with folks interviewing them. I, you know, There was this poor kid that I remember who literally was the domain owner of a website that printed an article criticizing Anya's. And the person who wrote the article was charged with terrorism. And he, for owning the website that, 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 that had this critical article, also was thrown in jail for terrorism. So they went after folks left and right. And they went out, they really targeted indigenous um, Moss politicians, Moss supporters, and people that were perceived as Moss supporters. So it didn't matter. I mean, at the end of the day, really, if you were indigenous to this government, you are Moss and you are a terrorist. So people that went through non-indigenous na neighborhoods were, were rounded up. They were arrested. The police were collaborating with these, really what became parastate groups, um, civilian vigilante groups that would see an indigenous person in, in the neighborhood, grab them, and either they would torture them or the police would torture them. They would get thrown in jail. They would get charged with sedition and terrorism. It was a, a really unprecedented year in terms of abuses. And, and sorry, I'm going to be a lawyer for a second, but because there's this debate on like whether this was a coup, whether there were really human rights abuses, I should mention that you know we we did a, at University Network for Human Rights and, and Harvard Law School, we did a, a report, you know, an eight ten month investigation into this. But so did the Inter American Commission, so did Human Rights Watch, so did Amnesty International. So did the, uh, this expert group set up by the Inter-American Commission. Um, so did the Ombudsperson's office. They all universally have found that these were massacres and that these were widespread abuses that took place. I mean, it really was, this was a dictatorship. This is how dictatorships behave. But I will say the one thing that was interesting that I kept hearing from people that I interviewed is this is worse than the dictatorships. Because at least in the dictatorships, we knew what was happening. At least the public, the international community knew this is a dictatorship. The difference with this government is that they had a, a prettier face. They had hired this team, like I said, CLS Strategies, to paint this completely different image of this democratic government that was saving Bolivia from dictator Evo Morales. Meanwhile, if you spoke out against them, you were thrown in jail, or you were shot, or you were tortured. So it, people who lived through the dictatorships in this period repeatedly have told me this was worse than the, the formal dictatorship period, you know, the 70s and 60s. Well, uh let me, if I can, ask a, a follow-up question on, on, on the issues that you raised, which I think are important. And I say this, you know, my background is in human rights, as you know, uh, Thomas and others. Uh, I've worked with Thomas and have worked with, with Thomas for years and uh, on human rights issues in Bolivia when we were both at Harvard Law School. But I'm, I'm particularly interested in the relevance of human rights in the narrative and the narratives that eventually led to the the, the demise of the Anya's government. So I, I'm hoping that you, Thomas, and, and, and Linda, you as well, can talk about what role did these various reports, the report by the University Network for Human Rights and Harvard Law School, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, the expert group, the HIE, or expert group of the Inter-American Commission, what role did that have in changing the understanding 
about what was happening in Bolivia and by extension, what had happened before and what is happening now. So if, can you talk about what does human rights have to do with all this? I, I may just continue on with this and then please jump in, Linda. Um, I mean, I think the good and bad of this stuff is, you know, unfortunately, there's still this really this strong deference to the, the colonial north. Um, and let's be clear, folks on the ground, folks in Sacaba, in Sincata, were very clear. They said we were massacred, but folks didn't listen. And it took, honestly, international the international community, gringos like um, us, to basically try to share their voices. And I think, um, uh, unfortunately, this is, uh, it, it, it did move the needle. <laughs> it, it's what made people listen. Um, re really, I think what took this government down were these abuses. Uh, you know, Anya's came to power under the pretext that she was going to call new elections. Um, legally, she had to within 90 days. Uh, she kept changing this. She kept kicking that can down the road. And really, you know, I think if there weren't critiques from social movements, definitely in Bolivia, but also the international community starting to chip away at this narrative that this was a democratic government. I think she would have stayed, who knows how long she would have stayed. Um, but I think, you know, we had a space to say something that folks on the ground didn't, you know, I don't want to rob. I, I think that the main thing that really did move the needle were social movements going out and protesting. But at the end of the day, if you spoke out against this government, you were thrown in jail. Uh, if you protested, you were shot, you were thrown in jail. And so it took um, collaboration with the international community and social movements to really draw attention to what was happening. And once these institutions started showing, look, this is not a democratic government, they're killing people. Um, really, they lost a lot of support from the international community. I mean, the US government, it became a liability. I mean, Bolivia is never really a priority of the US government, but eventually it became a liability supporting these people who go on television and say, we're gonna hunt you down like animals, you're terrorists. I mean, they. I mean, I remember Linda during this period. I mean, I've known Linda for years, and I've never seen her so scared. I mean, I was legitimately scared. But you know, the, the ministry minister of um, communications went on TV and said, "We have a list list of seditious journalists." Clearly, Linda was on this list. I was put on a list of seditious people. I was attacked. I mean, just to give a little context, you know, you mentioned that I've worked on this case against the ex-president of Bolivia. I, you know, for many <laughs> for a long period, I, I quite literally had a price on my head. But despite that, I've never had problems in Bolivia. When the coup happened, I've been attacked six, seven times uh, by groups in the street, by groups uh, al al allied. Physically with attacked. Physically, physically attacked. attacked. Surrounded where they say, you're a communist, you're a terrorist. Uh, then they'll say, you know, homophobic and other horrible things as well. And they'll say, get out of my country or we'll kill you or we'll throw you in jail. Or they'll say, the police are on our side. We'll get them and we'll drag you in jail. And some of these times, I mean, this that has happened. I, I couldn't count the number of times. Um, but also physically attacked, where they literally start shoving me. I've, I've been hit um, because I work in human rights. I mean, this is and this was the discourse of that government that human rights uh, human rights work is subversive. Criticizing the government is subversive. Uh, being a journalist is subversive, like Linda. <laughs> and so it, it was really quite challenging. But I will say, and part of the reason I think that the, the international community was able to play a, at least some role in changing this is because, you know, at the end of the day. Once I was put on a seditious list, I was very fortunate. I know my privilege. I was able to be in the United States. An indigenous person who was outspoken did not have that right. They didn't have that ability to just escape the situation. And, and um, I mean, I should mention, this is part of why Linda and I debated whether we even wanted to write the book as gringos from the global north. Why are we writing it? At the end of the day, because we were in some ways the only ones who could because those who spoke out were universally thrown in jail or were tortured or were beaten or were shot. 
Um, and so I think the human rights critiques that really chipped away at this narrative of democracy opened the door for uh, the social movements to have a little more space to go out and protest, and really is what I think led to elections after, roughly a year after Anya's illegally took power. So let me j- just say, uh, let me, you know, kudos to you for for uh, staying in, in Bolivia and doing this work. At, Facing the risks that you faced, and 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 for recognizing that the risks that you faced are not nearly as severe as the risks that those who are Bolivian, who are indigenous, uh, who can't leave Bolivia face, and who don't have foreign passports, like the risks they face are more severe. And and thank you for recognizing that, but also thank thank you for for your, for for being allies and for using your privilege to advance uh, the, the cause that the folks you're working with want to see advance. So let me just comment. I'm sure there are others. Who, who would say the same thing. And certainly a lot of Bolivians and people that I've spoken to in Bolivia have said that to me about you. So I think this is a really important book and I thank you for for uh, for doing it. It's important for uh, uh, for many, many reasons. You, you started to tee up there at the end and I'd love to hear both of you, Linda and Thomas, both on, from the outside looking in, and I remember in real time watching this, the elections kept getting postponed and I think the Anya's government was was using COVID as a basis for postponing the elections. I sort of thought, I, I, I don't know if there, if there will be elections. I think this government wants to entrench itself and remain. And then the elections were held and the result was an overwhelming victory for Arce, for, for Arce and for the MAS. Can you explain that to a non-Bolivian audience? What happened? How did that happen? Well, I think no, that- yeah, okay. I, I, I think that um, it was the social movements that really uh, became reinvigorated again um, and were the ones who really took to the streets, uh, particularly in August, and really forced Anya's. It became increasingly clear that the Anya's government was simply, as you say, uh, postponing using COVID to uh, postpone elections. Um, in, as indefinitely as they could, so they could consolidate power more and 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 sort of get rid of more of their of the people who were standing in their way of of that process. Um, I can't remember what was the what was the other part of your question, Jim. I'm sorry, I, I spaced it no, out. But how did how did this sweeping victory oh, yes, occur? Because okay. people on the outside yeah. did not we did not, I did not expect that. Maybe just I was wrong. Uh, I think in, in many ways, not, none of us really expected it. I think that, I think that, but then when thinking about it, you did, because I mean, I talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of working class people who said essentially the following, this was before 2019 election, was we want the process of change, which was what the MAS had been doing. We want this this political project to continue, political and social project to continue, but it's time for Evo to go. We need a new leader. And that was that was a very, among working class and indigenous people who supported the MAS, they were increasingly becoming also uncomfortable with Evo remaining. Once the MAS got a new uh, a new leader in place, uh, Luis Arce and David Choquehuanca, once they got them into place, combined with the horror that that people went through during the Anya's government, they really got a, 
a, a taste not just of a neoliberal government, which they had suffered through before, but really an ultra-right government, a, fa- a neo-fascist government, then people really were determined to bring the mass back to power. I mean, not only was Anya's and their and her cohort um, really nasty people, they were also really incompetent. I think that in the course of a year, I think there are about 17 ministries in Bolivia normally. I mean, they change, they get, some get open, some get shut, whatever, but there are 17 ministries. I think she had a total of like in one year, 34 different ministers. So which showed that nobody could, nobody had the capacity to really run the government, the administrative, the public administration kind of did not function. And so people remember that under the MAS, relative to previous years, for certainly the public administration where, you know, you could go and get your identity card without spending six days to do it, you know? So I think that all of those factors were involved in, in, in the victory of bringing the MAS back. They were, and also the MAS was associated with economic good times and you know, from the point that COVID started on, the economy was tanking, like it was everywhere around the world. Let Can me just I flag, I, for I sure, Thomas, say, let, me just, let me just say one thing, Thomas, is that we have some questions and we'll get to them. I just want people to keep sending in your questions. We, we'll spend some time with that. We still have about a half an hour. Thomas, back to you, sorry. I'll keep it short, but I, because I think I... I agree with Linda somewhat, and I think I disagree a little bit in terms of uh, I, certainly I've talked to people that said, you know, it's Abel's time is up. It's, it, you know, he should move on. Um, but I, I talked to others that I, I really don't. And this isn't to discount the things that Lucho Arce ha, has done when he was minister. I don't think it mattered. I think at the end of the day, the elections were, do you support fascism or no? Um, I, I don't know if the candidate really mattered. I think at that point, after seeing such a repressive year, Folks were folks showed up, lined up to vote because they they didn't want to live in a dictatorship anymore. I think if Abel was the candidate, I believe he would have won. I don't think he would have won with the same numbers that Lucho Arce did. He won with about 55 percent compared to Mesa's 28 percent. I mean, he basically doubled what Mesa had. Um, So it was a landslide victory. I don't think Abel would have gotten those numbers. But I also think that people at the end of the day, you know, there were all these critiques and there were certainly really valid critiques of the Moss. But these kind of micro critiques we, we should be constantly you know, self-reflecting. We should be criticizing any government, left or right. But at the end of the day, I think folks were like, okay, maybe I wish he, he consulted indigenous communities more before putting in uh, a road, which he should do, absolutely. But he wasn't gunning down people who spoke out against him. And I think that people showed up to vote because they were like, we don't want fascism anymore. And I think what represented that is, you know, uh, rather than talk about all these statistics, and, and I feel like we've gotten very academic about it, I was kind of throwing a little personal experience. I, I was at the headquarters when uh, the Moss won. And unlike, you know, if you see like when the Democrats or Republicans win, they start cranking queen, we are the, whatever, partying. This was not a party. People literally collapsed on the ground and started crying. And I got a phone call from Patricia Arce. And, and I've never heard, and I've known her for years and I've for quite a while now. And, and during when she was being kidnapped, this was the mayor that I'd mentioned. And at the time she had run for Senate uh, during the 2020 elections, during the dictatorship while she was being hunted down by the government, while she was being hunted down by parastate groups. And she won, and she called me the moment they won. And her, her voice was shaking. She could barely kind of talk about it. And she said, I can breathe for the first time in a year. 
My family can come out of hiding for the first time in a year. I can have a normal life. She could care less that she was just elected senator. It was that this government that was just taking out people left and right it was going to be gone. And that the government, that her, the Moss and whatever they represented with all their flaws could come back to power. And, if, and I think you're right, Jim. A lot of folks were really worried about this. I mean, I was there for the elections. And I remember the day of the elections, Anya's called out, uh, sent out 75,000, this um, co-police and military forces, 75,000 troops in La Paz alone to start going through the streets, intimidating people, scaring people from, from voting. I mean, this is the stuff that happens in dictatorships. So, petrified. so Lucho Arce won, just doubling the second place candidate it was honestly kind of weird because I remember going around the streets and thinking people were going to be celebrating, but it was like, is this going to last? Is is, is something going to happen? I mean, now we know that at the time there was actually a plan for a second coup. The defense minister, the one who I mentioned early earlier that had negotiated with Camacho about uh, forcing Abel to resign, had actually reached out to mercenaries and brought mercenaries to La Paz. Some of the mercenaries who were involved in the assassination of the Haitian president just a few months ago. Uh, so there was real fear that there was going to be a second coup or, or something to block the Moss from taking power. Uh, but with such extreme numbers doubling the second place candidate, I think there were not the conditions where they would be able to get away with it. The international community was not going to be able to accept that kind of coup. I mean, that's the thing is these 21st century coups, you can't do the 70 styles coup where you quite literally take over and drive down the streets in a tank. You have to you know, say it's something... There's an issue with democracy or, um, you know, fraud. These these kind of other extra legal kind of lawfare excuses to take people out of power, like what happened in Brazil and in Paraguay, some ways Honduras, Haiti. Um, I, you know, I they couldn't get away with a, like an old school coup, and and now we live in a, a somewhat better <laughs> Bolivia right now. By the way, so, I'm in Bolivia. That's why I say we. <laughs> so. There are two things I want to I want to ask, and, uh, and and hopefully you can give concise answers, although they're big questions. I think, uh, and then I want to turn to some of the questions that we've received, and maybe we'll receive some more from the folks who who are watching this online in real time. Here are the two things. One is related to what you just said, Thomas, which is why does this coup, this experience in Bolivia, matter in Bolivia and beyond? You talked about twenty first century coups. What are you talking about? What's the threat? What's the danger? Why, even if you don't care about Bolivia, and Bolivia matters for Bolivia, first and foremost, evidently. But beyond that, why does it matter? What are the lessons? What do we see? What are the threats? You've talked about priming and preparing a narrative of fraud to facilitate uh, violent change. What what have we seen in Bolivia? What should we learn from that? So that's, that's one question. And then I'd love your assessment of how are things going in Bolivia now with the Arce government? So those are the two questions. Maybe I'll throw them out together and then we'll turn to some of the questions that we've received from from viewers and i don't know who wants to start thomas or linda we'll go back to you maybe start with linda then come back to you thomas um, yeah um i i think that this what we saw in bolivia i mean bolivia is so often just such a, a an exaggerated case of things that go on in other parts of the world. I mean, that the, that the lessons are so stark there. And I think that um, 
what happened in Bolivia and and like Tom said, uh, in other countries in Latin America of this kind of coup light, which is not putting the tanks in the street or at least not immediately um, and and not having the, that kind of level of military takeover, unfortunately, is becoming and using the fraud narrative, consistently using a fraud narrative or using judicial means like a corruption, corruption cases in order order to subvert um, the voting process and the ability of people to elect their leaders uh, is is terrifyingly widespread and and is only increasing. And it's really it's a playbook that has worked very well for the far right and for the right wing. And they're continuing to use it. And it's really fundamentally undercutting um democratic processes throughout the hemisphere and throughout, I mean, and it's happening in Europe to a certain degree as well. And, um, and certainly in the United States. And so it's a, it's a very frightening trend. And I think that Bolivia's case, as it is with many issues, is, is so just sharply drawn that you can really see uh, how, how these particular sets of forces play out. Um, in terms of the issues about um, how the government has done in the last year, well, they're, they're competent at running a public administration. So they immediately moved on the COVID stuff. They got um, a lot of vaccines. They were way down at the very bottom of the of the line for the COVID vaccines and they got and tests and they, they really moved quickly to address that. Uh, they were very determined not to close down and lock down the country. I mean, which is a ridiculous notion. Anyway, you've got 75 percent of the population, the urban population works in the informal sector. So if they don't work, they don't eat. So you you can't uh, you, you, it's a lockdown is a completely impossible uh, situation. Um, the right wing has continued. The opposition continues to um the far right continue, they call Arce a dictator. I mean, <laughs> it's not really clear how you can uh, make that argument um, since the elections were declared uh, free um, and, and honest by uh, every group of international observers who took a look, look at it. But they continue to call him a dictator or a tyrant uh, and that he's doing everything to turn uh, Bolivia into another Venezuelan Cuba. Uh, they did have an issue in October where they managed to mobilize a large number of people because once again, they took a government law. And this has happened several times in Bolivian context, a law that was actually um, designed to uh, control money laundering. And so Bolivia would meet international standards around money laundering and manipulated to convincing, in fact, those informal workers who were all organized in, in unions convince them that the um, that they were that they that the government would be investing their bank account investing investigating their bank accounts and so on and so forth so there was popular protest and the uh, right wing took advantage of it and really shaped the narrative and the RSA government had to abandon basically ended up abandoning the law but overall I think they're doing it's rocky. You know, um, and there's always the fear, I think, that particularly people in the mass and around the mass are very understandably uh, very sensitive about any indication that anyone might try and pull off a coup again. 
but for the, for but I would say overall they've done a very good job in the last year. And I'll, I'll keep it short. No, no, please. Yeah, so folks can ask questions. Um, so uh, I'll say that. So I was here during the elections last year, um, and I spoke with folks on left, right, you know, politicians everywhere, uh, and folks, social movements. But I remember I was with the ex-president Lugo uh, of Paraguay and, and some of uh, some politicians from from uh, from Peru that were part of Castillo's party, and they said that these are the most important elections for Latin America of this decade because this is going to be this is really good at the end of the day. Going to this is the blueprint, and this is going to um, see whether people are going to accept these kinds of illegal transfers of power or not. And I think resoundingly, obviously, the Bolivians voted, no, we don't want this anymore. But it really was has become the blueprint. And it's become the kind of new form of coup, the, as, as what Linda said, the, the coup light, uh, or dicta suave, sometimes folks say. Um, and as I mentioned, it happened in Haiti, Brazil. They use these constitutional means. You can't get away with what you did before. But what you can do is say, Wow, that seems uh, there's some corruption there. That seems not constitutional, and throw a bunch of dust up in the air, and then really at the end of the day, put a bunch of memes on Facebook or information. I mean, if people are getting their information through more so through you know s- social media than actual facts, um, it's it's really not that hard. And we know this; it's happening in the United States. I mean, this is not, as Linda said, it's it's just like it's it's nothing new. But really, Bolivia served as a blueprint, and it was really. Um, we're seeing it happen unfold, it unfolding everywhere. And I think it's really scary. Um, I won't go into like the details of the mosque government and how they're doing now. I'll talk more about the situation because I think it, it really, in the way that like Trump and this notion of fraud still exists in the United States in the way it does here in Bolivia. I think a lot of the problems that we're dealing with in the United States, we're dealing with here in Bolivia. You have a democratically elected government. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, sure, the, the, the illegal regime of Anya's is gone, but those conditions still exist. Quite literally, the building I'm in right now has Indios de Mierda spray painted on it, fucking Indians. And you see this every block along the street I'm in. And I'm not even in kind of an upper, the upper class area. It's a, maybe an upper nor middle class area, students, artists. But it's become so normalized. The racism has become so normalized, the hatred to, towards indigenous people. And now that the right wing has had a taste of power, they're, they're rabid right now. And as Linda has stated, there's nothing that this current government can do, good or bad. Anything that Lucha Arce does, any movement, any, any step in one direction or the other, they say, this guy's a dictator. And that's been the narrative. And, and so uh, there's real fears of another, especially after these leaks came out that, that the, the former defense minister was trying to carry out a coup. Um, it, it's still scary here. Uh, there may be a new government. There is this excitement that you know we've ret- in some ways recuperated the democracy or restore democracy, but uh, on paper, but in the streets, uh, you know, I, I, literally yesterday I was harassed again. And again, I don't want to make this about some gringo, poor me, whatever. If it happens to a gringo, it happens thousandfold to an indigenous person. But I was literally just harassed yesterday. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was surrounded by really the equivalent of soccer moms. And this is what's frightening to me is that, you know, you have these right-wing parastate groups that have been so violent, but they're not, that's, I'm a little less worried about them and more worried about kind of the normal folks, the equivalent of soccer moms surrounded me saying that they were going to kill me if I didn't get out of the country. It's become so normalized, this fascism that existed, that was kind of on the fringes has now become normalized in the way that it has in the US, but I would say, you know, very, you know, hundredfold. Uh, it, it's really violent. It's very racist. And those conditions still exist, whether or not there's a new government. And I think there's a real fear that this is going to continue for a while. 
um, it, it perhaps even we'll see another coup in the coming months or year. Wow. Uh, Sorry to be a Debbie okay. Downer. But, no, but I mean, no, no, no. We deal, we deal in truth. We're trying to deal in truth and reality and prepare for it. Let me ask a question. I think you've already answered, uh, but just that I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good question. How has the right responded since the return of, of, of the mass? Is there more planning and plotting or has the right been demoralized by his return? I, th I think you've responded to that question is th that, you know, they continue to be active and and ready and waiting and mobilizing for a return to power. I mean, I'm synthesizing what you said. Yeah, but could I add yeah, on to that? Because I think that sure. they've grown, <laughs> they've adapted. And, you know, while on some levels attacking people in the streets or spray painting Indio de Mierda is one form, what they've really been smart at is um, co-opting spaces like you and I work in gym, uh, human rights spaces. They've really been savvy about sending this message that, that Lucho Arce is this horrific dictator. Um, and it's worked in some ways. I mean, right now, the narrative for about 30, 40 percent of the population in Bolivia that the U.S. government has accepted is that Añez, who carried out these massacres, who signed a decree, an illegal decree that the entire international human rights community has said, this is illegal. Um, she is now seen as a political prisoner. The State Department has openly said, oh, we're worried about her being a political prisoner. I mean, they've been very effective at um, painting a different narrative, just like they were during the coup. Um, and so uh, I think their response has been to adapt, uh, to take some of those methods that worked really well, maybe t dial it down for, instead of being at 11, <laughs> like Anya's was, and just gunning down people who spoke out. Maybe they're not going to use quite as much violence. But that narrative, is, the discourse is still the same. And, and they're really smart about, you know, electing and choosing people who um, are articulate. They're not putting the kind of proud boy who's yelling, you know, using a Nazi salute and yelling very racist things. They're putting the educated elite, uh, what appears to be kind of a more moderate person, to, sit, to basically pitch this false narrative. And they've been successful. So, um, again, not to be the Debbie Downer, uh, they've adapted and it's, it's still quite challenging here. Lynn, I don't know if you want to add to that, your sense of where the right is, where the reaction against uh, Lucho Arce and the Mas and uh, indigenous movements, where that, where you see that, if you, if you want to add to what Thomas has, has set out. I, I think that Thomas is actually absolutely right. I mean, I haven't been in Bolivia since March, but um, I, I, I think that he's, he's absolutely right. I think that there are still large numbers of people who, who are not ready to face that there was a, a coup that went on, and that um, and believe that the that the mosque that the mosque government is uh, are a bunch of tyrants. I mean, it, it's it's really the country has become really really polarized. I mean, that's what these kinds of situations do is that they intensely polarize countries, and that's definitely what's happened there. But I will say that what makes Bolivia unique is it's such a it has such a history of racism and classism and inequality that you could almost, you know. Ninety eight percent, if you divide people by their race and class, you know, even folks who identify as liberal uh, or progressive or some even kind of intellectual left um, supported the coup, were silent during the massacres and in some ways have doubled down because I think they were it's a bit embarrassing that they sided with the dictatorship. 
but really it, it's divided along class and race lines. Um, I, again, not every indigenous person supports the Moss and not every, you know, elite lighter skin Bolivian is a fascist, but it, you know, really you can't take, I think it, this happens everywhere, but it's just emphasized so much more here. Class and race matter so much more than even politics uh, on what's happened in the last several years in Bolivia. Okay. Uh, let me turn to another question. Uh, <clears throat> I was going to say on that uh, cheery note, but th there are not a lot of cheery notes. And, uh, and in part, I'm sitting in, in Connecticut in the United States. And, you know, I spent many years working in Latin America, as you know, Thomas and, and, and Linda. And, uh, I'm hearing all of this through a filter where I think we're living through many of the same issues of hyperpolarization, of uh, fact-free attacks. You know, when you talk about uh, referring, or, you know, attacking Lucho Arce, no matter what he does, as a tyrant, you know, here the discourse is Joe Biden is a communist, you know, which is laughable to anyone who understands socialism, communism or left politics. So a lot of this, just it just sounds terribly and painfully similar. That said, let me turn to a question which addresses some of these issues. Someone, one of the viewers asks, what should solidarity from the United States look like? And then more concretely, are there particular campaigns that people here in the United States may get involved with. But what would solidarity from the United States look look like? I think part of that has to do with what's going on in the United States. And then more concretely, what could people in the United States do with relation to what's happening in Bolivia and maybe the role of the United States there? So to both of you, I don't know who wants to take a bite at that question first. Linda? Uh, go for it, Tom. Uh, she's throwing me uh, under the bus. I mean, I think really the hardest part is I think that Folks don't know what's happening. Um, you can't mobilize around something if you don't know what's going on. I would say half, I, I don't even know how many, I mean, my own family, I, I've lived in Bolivia for most of the last decade and a half. They don't know if it's Botswana or Bosnia, you know, like, so I think mobilizing folks means really, you first need to educate them. And I think with this extreme disinformation campaign that took place during the coup and after the coup, it's really getting the message out there, what's happening. Um, it's it's really exposing. I mean, I think the the really important, I think the most important thing, at least in terms of, I'm biased as a human rights lawyer, but in, in the next year is that Anya's is being charged with egregious human rights abuses as well as her role in the coup. And I think the fact that the narrative in the United States is she's a political prisoner, that's horrific to me. I mean, th this is like crazy to me. <laughs> it, it's just this kind of this like bizarro world where someone who who sends troops to gun down people and passes illegal decrees and, and goes after their family members is now the victim. Um, so I think starting with the human rights issues, which are very clear and, and really, you know, usually I, I don't think um, bugging Congress people, I, I don't have much faith in U.S. institutions and U.S. governments to change stuff. But the right, if they don't have the support of the, the United States, they don't get away with what they're doing. So I think it's really educating folks in power in the United States. Again, that's not usually the, the space I find activism to be most helpful. But I think in this case, this is one of those times where a few Democratic Congress people, I mean, this is an issue when the head of CLS strategies is part of the Biden administration. So these folks, the Democrats who arguably are the better guys, I mean, the Republicans certainly are going to support the fascists here, but the, the Democrats support them too. And I think 
though politically I'm way far to the left of Democrats, I do think that there are some Democrats who, for instance, would think gunning down unarmed indigenous protesters is not okay. And so I think just getting them the information, I think speaking out against this, I think there's social, there's um, solidarity groups, the Bolivia Solidarity Network, there's a group Wipalas uh, across the world that has been incredibly active during the coup, post-coup, that has made sure that information has gets out to folks uh, so that it actually hits newspapers. I mean, I think if you look at the the, the response by U.S. press post-coup up until now, I mean, never been great, but it definitely supported the coup, and it's gotten better and better and better. And I think a lot of that has to do with, unfortunately, because of colonialism and the way that the press <laughs> works, folks in the global north saying, Hey, this seems really bad and making sure that people have the accurate information. So I think groups like Wipalas across the world and other groups that are educating people, I think that's the way to start because right now it's, and, you know, protesting in front of the embassy or folks, if, you know, Anya's daughter came to the United States and did this kind of weird, like media tour. Um, ironically, she went in front of, met with Human Rights Watch, but took a photo in front of the Human Rights Campaign. Uh, and this is from a family that's, radically right-wing evangelical anti-gay and the human rights campaign that's their I mean, that's what they focus on but it is kind of like again this is all about it she had some really sharp hashtags and beautiful memes of her standing in front of hrc um but i think really break breaking apart the narrative that's really helped um radicalize the right and, and empower the right here linda if you want to add on to that no, I mean, I think that Tom uh, really has covered it. Um, there, there historically have not been uh, very strong solidarity groups around Bolivia in the States. I mean, we worked um, on the Goni campaign. There was a small group of us that worked, did a bunch of work around the Goni campaign. Um, I, I know that most of the audience here is probably um, from the U.S. And, and possibly Canada as well. But I just would mention that there is a very active a group in the U.K. called Friends of Bolivia. So that's for anybody who's involved with the U.K. Uh, or lives in the U.K. might be interested in finding checking that one out. Okay, <clears throat> so we've got four more minutes by my count. I want to bring us in for a landing at, at 6.30. So I, I want to ask each of you, what in here would you like to draw out? A narrative, uh, a personal experience? What else do you want to tell people in the last couple of minutes about this book, about writing this book, about the experience, about what's in it, about what's going on in Bolivia? What do you, what do you want to say in, in a few more minutes? Just open, open space. What would you like to tell people? Obviously, people who care about Bolivia, people who care about injustice, people who've been uh, paying attention for the past, you know, 87, 86, 87 minutes, a, a couple um, of minutes. Uh, Linda, please. Yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll, um, I'll respond. I should like to respond to one of the questions, was, which is what do you say to the people who argue we can't have any criticisms of left-leaning regimes in Bolivia and elsewhere? I, I think that we do, um, as people on the left, we do ourselves and we do uh, our communities that we work with and work for a disservice if we don't have a process of uh, self-criticism, of criticism and self-criticism, um, a respectful process, a process that recognizes the importance of building unity and community, uh, but not at all costs. I, I think that there are, and I think there's also an issue of timing. There's a, there's a moment when it's a 
appropriate to raise criticisms, for example. And then there's moments like during the coup, like what we lived through the through the coup. That's not the moment to start criticizing where the government had failed. We need to mobilize to to really defend human rights. So or that's at minimum my, allying with the right wing. Pardon me. Or at minimum allying with the right wing, which is what happened with I think some leftist intellectuals. They were so hypercritical of the mosque that they, you literally saw them in rallies with people who were overtly racist and fascist, you know, hand in hand criticizing the mosque. And that's just not the space for that. That's just. <laughs> All right, right. I agree. I mean, certainly in the Bolivian case, I, I was thinking more broadly in terms of um, uh, in Latin, in, you know, U.S. solidarity, people working in solidarity with parts of Latin America. I think that very often what I see as a very kind of knee jerk kind of response without um, any kind of serious thought about uh, the complications of actually making change in the world and um, that it doesn't always go well, unfortunately. We wish we did, it did but it doesn't. It's a very complex process. And, and it's one that requires a lot of reflection and self-reflection. So I'll keep mine really short uh, since I know we're running out of time. And rather than kind of, uh, I'll give a little story. <laughs> uh, yesterday, I interviewed one of the, the victims of Sinkata. Um, she lost her son. He was, he was gunned down. Um, and sadly, her, the, her husband um, brought uh, the son to various hospitals. And they said, Oh, he's with the Moss Party. He's a terrorist. We're not going to give him uh, medical attention, and that's why he died, ultimately. Um, and it was really hard on the, the father. And he uh, is the way she put it is after his death, he lived in a cloud, and basically, as she put it, died from a broken heart. <laughs> I mean, really, really sad story. Uh, we we spoke for several hours yesterday, um, but she had this positive attitude still that was really inspired. I mean, I can't imagine losing my child and my partner, uh, all within a year. And she talked about, you know, we, we do have the, and I agree, definitely. We need to critique the mosque. We need to critique any government. Part of a revolution is constant self-reflection and constant critique. Um, but she said, you know, before the mosque, I couldn't go into restaurants. I don't know how to read and write, but the mosque came to power and my daughter can read and write. She's in school right now. She said, after the coup, we felt abandoned. We felt like orphans. But then we got to vote, we mobilized, we went into the streets, we mobilized, and we were able to vote in Lucho Arce. And I think, you know, I've been such a Debbie Downer this whole time, but I think it is really exciting, despite all these really scary things that are still happening, it shows that the, the social movements are still very powerful here. They were able to, to restore democracy in Bolivia. And I think one of the kind of the silver lining in the coup is, as Linda mentioned earlier, there was some co-optation, I think, it was a very movement-based party that really kind of concentrated power on the top by the end. And I think it, it it's forced the MAS to, to reflect and it's really reinvigorated the social movements and had the MAS start looking to the social movements. And I think as long as the social movements are engaged, you know, I think we can resist a, another coup here. And I think we can really have some interesting change in Bolivia. And so she, despite this really horrific year and a half, two years that she's lived through, she was really positive. Uh, and I think there's a lot of stuff that we should celebrate and we can learn from in the global north and folks who are listening in the global south. I think Bolivia could be a really an example of, of how to uh, bring justice and, and democracy back to a country. Uh, great, great, great concept and narrative uh, to end on and, and just really inspiring that someone who suffered that much can still wake up and continue struggling for justice. This is the book, Coup. Uh, I strongly recommend 
you, 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 you buy it and read it, Haymarket Books. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, everyone else who's participated. And Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.